Will Matthewson Wednesdays, Mark Dyer Thursdays, and Joel Raymond on Fridays. That's On the Wing, only on Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. Hi, this is Charlie from Sunday Morning Coffee House and Front Porch Folk. Did you know there are some important ways you can support WERU and plan for your future at the same time? Legacy gifts help ensure that WERU will continue to be here for many years to come. Anyone can leave a legacy by naming WERU as a beneficiary in their will, living trust, insurance, or retirement accounts. It's easy to do and costs nothing during your lifetime. You can also invest in our fund at the Maine Community Foundation. Your gift will be invested securely and ethically and can grow over time. Legacy gifts can also provide you or your estate with important tax benefits. For more information, contact your financial advisor or WERU Development Director, Heather Andrews. Thanks so much. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Front Street Shipyard, a Midcoast, Maine boat building, repair, and storage facility located in Belfast. Front Street Shipyard on Penobscot Bay, offering dockage, service, and amenities for owners, captains, and crew. Online at frontstreetshipyard.com or 930-3740. Support for WERU also comes from Bruce Parley Incorporated, specializing in custom-built staircases and also fine-finished carpentry on yachts, trolleys, etc. since 1998. In Trenton at 479-4269 or Parley at gmail.com. We've got about five seconds before boat talk time. Time enough to tell you it's about 38 degrees for a high today, a low 28 tonight, high tomorrow 42. It's time for boat talk. Good morning, good morning. It's the second Tuesday of the month, 10 a.m. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor. All around the world at WERU.org. Boat Talk is a call-in show for people contemplating things naval with your rusty anchors, Mike Joyce, and today we're joined again by John Johansson, the, the uh, president, the the chairman of the board of the uh, Maine Built Boats, uh, the uh, publisher of Maine Coastal News, um, and quite the researcher, too. He has uh, been going to many uh, museums and uh, probably newspaper offices. Offices. Newspapers. Yep. Uh, checking out uh, all kinds of nautical history. Very interesting section and part of Maine Coastal News. But anyway, we were also supposed to be uh, having Kevin Johnson, the photo archivist from Penobscot Marine Museum here today. Unfortunately, he's not able to make it. We're going to try to reach him by phone in a little bit, talk about uh, some uh, marine photographs and the new book he has of uh, all kinds of uh, uh, photographs of early Maine and uh, being a radio show, it's a little bit difficult to uh, talk about photographs on, on a radio show, but I'm sure it won't be a negative experience. Oh, oh. I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it. And there it is. Yeah, there it is. The funny one. Yeah, positively funny. Yeah. So uh, we got all kinds of local news to talk about, too, um, all kinds of what's happening in the boat yards in the area and uh, – We'll let you start right out, Mike. A little bit. Uh, we'll start Talk with about lobsters. Uh, let's let's uh, let's start with this one. We didn't get into uh, last month, but um, shout out to our friends uh, uh, Paul Stevens. Um, I'm sorry, uh, Rob. Yeah, uh, Rob Stevens and Paul Waring. Stevens and Waring boat design down in Belfast. They designed and um, helped to get built a uh, nice little day sailor called Anna. It's only 66 and a half feet long. It has a crew of two, day sailor, and uh, was built in Lyman Morse down in uh, Thomaston and was shortlisted with eight other boats from around the world by Classic Boat Magazine for the uh, finalist in the uh, Classic Boat Spirited Tradition class. 
this is a fair big, uh, you know, deal of worldwide class here. And uh, those boys over there are very good at what they do. Didn't she win? Oh, uh, this is from a couple, um, this is from back in uh, middle February, this clipping I have here. I've been carrying it around ever I since. Think so. she won. Yeah. I think she took first. And I'm right to uh, shout out to them as pretty talented boys over there wearing and Stevens in Belfast. They uh, also just see an ad they're uh, running for a, I, I would call it a houseboat series. They're uh, dockside living units, I guess. Uh, uh, very glassy. Yes, uh, very floating, glassy. Yeah, no, glassy. A lot of glass. Glassy. Oh, yes. window glassy. Yeah, a lot of... Yeah, not fiberglassy. No, and, <laughs> and very classy. And again, the new thing in shoreside living... Uh, so it advertises main boats. Yeah. Homes and Harbors magazine recently, Stevens and Warren in Belfast, Maine. World, absolutely world class, those boys here. Steve White, I believe, has designed a houseboat using uh, containers, recycled shipping containers. Yes, and another thing I've heard, I am um, interested in the idea of tiny houses. Uh-huh. Being a fairly tiny mind, and, uh, you know, an old poor fellow. <laughs> a tiny at, budget. Yes. Looking at my future, yes. And... Uh, I heard that the Maine Harbor Masters had a meeting last winter at the Samoset and talked over the idea of floating tiny houses, and there wasn't one of them going to smile at that. Uh, Nobody yeah. wants them in their harbor. It, some people look at it as a way of avoiding land tax. Mm. So, uh, yeah, there is some some And if you think you're going to make life available, maybe. easier by living on the water, best of luck to you. And, uh, <laughs> well, look at the ones that Robin Hood have. They rent them out. Seen them, yeah. Well, they kind of look like a tugboat, a little uglier, but uh, they rent them out. I think there's three of them now, and they're completely rented right from basically the middle of spring to the basically right in the middle of fall. Like an Airbnb situation. Yeah, yeah. And, and they bring them into the dock to service them, and then they take them out and set them on a mooring, give you all kinds of boats to play with. Huh. But yeah. it's down at Robin Hood. Yep. Nice. Do they haul them in the winter? Nope. They're still sitting in the water right now because they don't actually freeze in. That harbor doesn't oh, freeze right, in. Yeah. The harbor masters are separating out uh, true houseboats with um, uh, living or, uh, you know, uh, barges, uh, more or less. Uh, is it mobile is, is one of the keys. And basically, if you're not mobile, they certainly don't want you in the harbor. Uh, uh-huh. There are, of course, uh, pollution concerns and uh, just uh, congestion, if nothing else. So. Yeah. Again, if you're uh, thinking to float your tiny house, uh, man, you want to start smiling and uh, chumming up your harbor master now. Cause, uh, but what's their problem? I mean, what's the real issue of them if you can actually service everything? Uh, some pro- some may be concerned about waste disposal, right, but h- if how you that's get a, handled. Yeah. But if you get a boat to come out and pump you out. Yeah, yeah so, you could tow your tow your house over to a pump-out station if it was right. one fairly local. Yeah, um, compost and toilet, a gray water tank. It's mm-hmm. not that complicated, honestly. But, uh, again, the infrastructure um, in main harbors is not welcoming that nowadays. So, but if uh, it becomes very popular, maybe congestion could be a problem. Mm. But yeah. Well, of course, different towns are getting different uh, ideas about how to manage the idea of tiny houses. Uh, realtors, I hear, don't like them. <laughs> the lawn care people don't like they them. They don't sell for a lot of money, you know, and again, trying to uh, cheap out on the uh, biggest investment that uh, most people make is uh, your house, apparently. So, uh, again, the idea of tiny houseboats, uh, be careful. They were they, talking they've, about been, it. they've been happening in the West Coast for a long time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Seattle, isn't it big up there? They have. I've never been there, but I've heard that. Yeah, Port Washington. I guess there's a big. Even on the North Shore, I noticed there's some really nice, fancy ones that they have. You know, sitting in the middle of an anchorage. Hmm. I wonder how long they last. I mean, your bottom hmm. eventually must deteriorate, or you'd have to haul out and do something. Oh, there's uh, maintenance issues you're not aware of. Uh, you know, you can ignore the back of the house, but theoretically, you can't ignore the underside of the boat. Hmm. Well, you know, if you go to Belmont Boat and take the left to go down to Union. Somebody's built a barge with a house on it, huh. and I'm waiting for it to move. And I have it, and it's getting close. Down two twenty, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. right there. It's maybe in a mile on the right side, and it. it's actually starting to move. So that I think he's getting ready to launch that. Huh. 
So it'd be interesting where it goes and how much hassle he gets. It'll take most of the road to get it there. But Probably. Yeah. <laughs> well, us water-oriented people had a chuckle a minute ago uh, saying that if you want to simplify your uh, life by living on the water, best of luck to you. But uh, you speaking of the communities out on the West Coast, if you did want to live on the water, the best way to do it would be a community. You mm-hmm. need other people around to uh, organize the infrastructure and take care of things when uh, yep. uh, things get rough and, and uh, boisterous and, uh, you know, not a nice day. Um, you know, things go sideways. Community is uh, what you want. So, uh, yeah, best of luck with the tiny floating house. So, uh, Bangor Daily News today. I asked John uh, Johansson here. John's one of the wonderful things about John is he goes up and down the coast and visits a lot of people. He's... Uh, you uh, walk into a lot of shops and businesses, and as far as I can tell, John, about everybody smiles when they see you coming. So Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so I asked you uh, the other month, I says, what do you hear about the effect of uh, the great leader's uh, lobster tariffs? And you says, don't hear much. So uh, from the Bangor Daily News today, lobster company purchases new customers, or I'm sorry, pursues new customers to survive Chinese tariffs. We're talking about the... Uh, Main Coast Company down in York. And uh, the owner is uh, Tom Adams. He says uh, since July 6th, a date he knows effortlessly, 25% tariff has been imposed on all lobsters exported from the United States to China as trade tensions escalate. Same time, trade with Chinese companies was about 20% of all his company revenue and business was growing. This is like a $60 million company down in York, Maine. Mm. The uh, new game plan is to court customers from other Asian markets, including Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam, Hong Kong, and Korea. Game plan has proven highly successful, if a bit stressful. Uh, All that business won't add up to one China, he says. And uh, they also, last year, took on a uh, $1.4 million expansion. He says the... um, been in the planning stages for two years. The time it was not beautiful, but I never could have built a business plan that included tariffs. Meanwhile, meanwhile, companies in Canada where there are no tariffs have been taking up the China slack, and according to Adams, they have built infrastructure very quickly to meet the demand. Canada does a good job funding the seafood industry and is putting money into its airports and support for the business. That infrastructure is not going away there will be a percentage of sales that will never come back. You know, never come back. That's, never come back. Mm, Talking about uh, that's not good. Mexican tariffs on auto parts next. So you know, <laughs> I'm sure. Is we learning? Is always the question. Is we learning? You know, and uh, is it complicated? Now, nah, well, you know, who could who could figure that out? So we are doing boat talk this morning, and it's a call-in show too for anybody yeah. who has anything. They could like to contemplate. It's one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Yeah, matter of fact, uh, apparently uh, uh, not having Kevin Johnson in the studio this morning live uh, might be a good good morning to give a call in. Like to mention something about the climate change in every uh, issue and try to build on that. And uh, somebody's pointing out climate change maybe not the right term. How about climate disruption? And uh, they're saying so. Last month, we uh, referenced a story, uh, rising seas swallowed $70 million in uh, waterfront main home values, says a new study out, and that is one way that it's starting to hurt. From the Bangor Daily News, it says here, um, towns to get help facing rising seas. State officials are hoping to find out which areas along the shores of Penobscot Bay are the most vulnerable to rising seas and how to protect them. The Maine Coastal Program is part of the State Department of Marine Resources has received a federal grant, grant a little bit more than $200,000 from NOAA, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. Plans to use study to hire a consultant, study the phenomenon of, uh, of uh, the uh, rising seas and how to protect communities, including Belfast, Camden, Castine, Lincolnville, North Haven, Rockland, Searsport, South Thomaston, Stonington, and Vinyl Haven among others. It points out here that in Maine, the Gulf of Maine is warming more quickly than 99.9% point, of the uh, other saltwater bodies on the planet. It's bragging rights for us, but it's not a good thing. 
And um, there are three objectives for the study around Penobscot Bay. One, make a baseline for the effects of sea level rise in participating towns. Second is to use storm surge and sea level rise models to identify waterfront resources and facilities that are going to be most vulnerable. Third, uh, draft uh, reports that include incremental adaptation strategies to help to minimize the effects of rising seas. Um, our friend Jeff Gold sent me a couple of weeks ago some data from NOAA uh, concerning the sea level uh, rise in both Bar Harbor and Rockland over the last, I think it was like the last 10 years. And in Bar Harbor, there is a, a, a noticeable significant r- general uh, rise over those years. In Rockland, it's flat. I thought that was remarkable that you could get sea level rise in one harbor fairly local and another one has no signs of sea level rise. I thought that was very odd. Topography, it, geography maybe? Uh, more Republicans in Rockland maybe. I don't know. There you go. I think the guys to ask is the pilot. Ask the pilot. He always knows how much water is around that big ship. There you go. Right, yeah. 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 You know. Well, the the uh, again, the discussion that we're having in the background here doesn't do us any credit at all. This uh, Green New Deal uh, idea has come out, and the uh, climate disrupting deniers are uh, mocking it uh, rather uh, relentlessly, which uh, serves as a substitute for uh, discussion of facts and stuff. Uh, here's a great example for you. Just the other night on the Sean Hannity program, he had on a fellow named Jesse Waters, who's a, uh, another Fox News guy. And they were talking about uh, climate uh, change and uh, disasters and stuff. And and Sean, who thinks it's all a uh, put-up job uh, to take power away from uh, real responsible people, uh, (laughs) says that, uh, you know, this isn't even a real fight. And and Jesse Waters points out that, no, this this isn't a real big deal at all. You can take care of climate change with suntan lotion, he said. (laughs) Okay? Uh You can take care of suntan, uh, climate change with suntan lotion. You put it on the sun or the yeah. upper atmosphere? In 2000, so Google, uh, you know, climate uh, uh, change uh, costs in the United States in 2018, there were 14 weather and climate disasters with losses exceeding a billion dollars each. That included one drought, drought uh, eight severe storm events, two tropical cy- cyclone events, a wildfire, and two big winter storms. Overall, these events resulted in the death of 247 people and significant economic effects on the impacted areas. What SPF factor do you put on for, uh, you know, a tornado whisking you away? Oh, man. What's the highest? 65? Yeah, So let's go to 100. Yeah, 100. Yeah. And if I could, uh, again, like to not only point out the argument, but how it's made. Uh, In the next breath, he says, you know, it's not even a real thing. Climate change is not even a real fight. A real fight was civil rights. And who was against that? The Democrats. They were against that. Which... Let's face it, the Southern Democrats at the time uh, were against that, and but they're not the Southern Democrats anymore. You leave quite a bit out of the story there, uh, a lot of relative facts about who was what. And, uh, you know, He's known for that. Yes. Who is here today. And if you want to uh, base a discussion on the future of this planet uh, in such a way, man, uh, like I say, uh, best of luck, folks. So, uh, again, we'll take any input on that. Uh, this is a call-in show this morning. I'd love to talk to you any time. one 625 9378 Got one more short one from the Bangor Daily News again. Maine Maritime Academy has a $20 million fundraising campaign in uh, action right now. They want to put that to uh, tuition, help uh, students with tuition. They just received the biggest gift they've ever had, a $10 million gift from Captain William Bullard, class of 1959. Bullard died in 2018 after leading a life deeply connected to the sea, sailed as a master mariner for 10 years before becoming a pilot, and worked in ports ranging from the Caribbean and Hawaii to Panama and Alaska, also a Navy veteran. Where did he live? Doesn't say. It sounds like he was from away for a while, you know? (laughs) Would have made it a lot easier. Yeah. There There wasn't a son attached to that donation, was there? No. Not that I know of. So, yeah, again, uh, $10 million donation uh, 
Are they still involved in the paper mill? Ah, and one of the things that they're hoping to do is buy the Verso property in Bucksport. That's on their list of uh, right. expansion areas. Uh, not sure what's going to happen. Uh, they may help right there. Down there, we're still talking about the possibility of a salmon pen there, but the idea that uh, Maine Maritime could take it over is, uh, you know, it's an institution with a future and some possibilities. Right. So um, speaking of Maine Maritime, how is uh, the Bowden coming? Have you been checking that lately? I heard she had a few more planks off of her. Okay. Always more than you hope on old wooden boat. Let's yeah. just uh, assume that. And before we uh, get away from the Verso thing, to point out that uh, whoever takes that on, it's said to be highly polluted piece of property. So why? Yeah. How? How could that? Have How happened? could that ever have happened? <laughs> we know the boys that are working there. I mean, come on. We have. Oh wait, that's Al. Yeah, we have Fred uh, on ten- in Tenants Harbor on the phone. Good morning, Fred. Good morning. Hey, I, I'm, I'm, I couldn't go to a meeting I usually go to at this time, uh, so I'm glad to hear you and to put my two cents in, and I am just finishing reading again uh, a book uh, by William Langwish. It's called The Outlaw Sea, A World of Freedom, Chaos, and Crime, and about the commercial big ships going around the planet. Uh, he says that it's on average it's about 40,000 huge ships cruising uh, planet Earth on any given day. And uh, his perspective and his research just uh, uh, is both educational and entertaining. The Outlaw Sea, was it? Yes. Yeah, I believe I've read it. I think it's good, yeah. 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 And... uh, He's, you know, he's a primarily an airplane guy, but he uh, decided to. Oh, uh, then he's jealous. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Fred. Fred, think of it this way: I got a, I got a book um, by some British guys who um, were the first people to manhaul successfully to uh, the South Pole. This was back in the seventies or eighties. Uh-huh. Everything they had to take, they took on sledges and dragged it behind them. Right. And uh, did not have a good time. They uh, really surprise, didn't get along surprise. well with each other, and it was it was a pretty nuts little thing. But here here's one of the lessons: if if uh, you've got to take it with you and you can uh, carry it on your back, you can only take so much. You can drag a little bit more, right. you know. And if you can put wheels under it, good. If you can skid it on some ice, that's good too. But it's going to be tough. If you can float it, bring everything. <laughs> You're not worried about you're not worried about weight restrictions again, and of course yeah. the guy in the airplane <laughs> weight is everything. So you know he's jealous. Oh, I, thank you. I, that is. Uh, and again, uh, in terms of moving anything, float it. Uh, let alone right. delivering things around the around the planet. Uh, uh-huh. You know, no brainer. Oh. oh man. You can take a lot more on your camping uh, canoe trip than you can on yep. your backpacking yep. trip. Yep. Let's put it that way. You know. I, uh, yeah. I had a big kayak, and I did a trip, and I stuffed that baby full, and uh, it was a great trip. Where'd you go? I went from South Freeport to uh, Tenants Harbor. Ooh. Yep. Oh, that's a little ways. How that's long did that take you? A week, and I lucked out on the weather, uh, you know, going around the points I had to go around, and the Kennebec didn't get me because I... Uh, I got there at the right time and didn't get eaten up like I've heard that can happen. And, um, you know, it just, uh, I, that's when I, I, I got it out of me. You know, I, uh, I, uh, I was relaxed with regard to paddling after that. Where did you spend the evenings, Fred? What was the, oh, wherever, uh... wherever I had a tent. And, um, uh, you know, like that. And, oh, it maybe rained one night and I happened to be at Pop Beach. So there was a nice, uh, campground there and Spinney's restaurant and uh, so uh, that worked out just fine. Camping can include a lot of different styles. I, I like to say it's all camping and uh-huh. none of us really camp too hard. Yeah. You also did this alone, Fred? Absolutely. Can't recommend that. Well, no, no, no. That, that, that was uh, a while ago and uh, to be done once uh, with luck and uh, then, uh, you know, you can do it safely but you need a little more equipment and prep than I did, but what can I say? Nice. <laughs> You're there now. Yep. Get out and go somewhere, and apparently you survive. So, uh-huh. yeah, excellent. <laughs> hey, thanks for the show. Yeah. So, Fred, do you uh, you know what the lobster or the fishermen call kayaks? Don't you? Speed bumps. Speed bumps. <laughs> yes. And the ones we don't like are double because you have to hit them twice. <laughs> double, double speed bumps. That's um, Fred. Um, 
I'm all also of the opinion if you only had to have one boat, kayak would be a wonderful choice. There's yeah. uh, hardly a more able craft or a better uh, basic system, but boat paddle is all you need to smile, basically. Speaking about having one boat, now one thing that's becoming very popular with the high-enders who have these uh, 200, 300-foot-long mega yachts that they take around to various parts of the world, they now have uh, tenders for their yep. mega yachts. They're, you know where they're built. Uh, Damon is building some. Where, where, where else are they building? How about Hodgson Yachts? Hodgson Yachts, yes, making a, a, a mega right yacht in, tender. Do you remember where Diamond Plow was when you came out of Damariscotta headed north? They took over the Diamond Plow building, and uh, they've got at least two in there right now under construction. How big are they? They're... Just over 30, 30 feet. Oh, that's that's small compared to some of these tenders. Some of these tenders are over 100 feet. They have room for uh, your sailboat, jet skis, and a helicopter, not to mention crew quarters and all that sort of stuff so you don't have to deal mm. with. Well, these are for the, the boat to get out to that big one. Okay. So, yeah, okay, yeah, that's a yeah, little... Ship to shore tender. I'm talking yeah. about these. These are big boats that foul your your mega yacht with all the toys. <laughs> Got to have it. Um, Fifty fifty million dollars for one. It's a world mostly of water, and there's more water coming. The world is all about money, and uh, you know most some people that have most of it. And thank God they, they seem to their- some of them <laughs> like boats. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, thank goodness. Some of them are boat nuts just like we are. So, uh, you know, in some ways it works out. But on the other hand, like I say, good to be boat people uh, with a world full of water and more coming if you can afford to be. How about some of the projects going on on the coast? How about in Brooklyn Boat Yard, the Hinkley 53 they're finishing up? Oh, right. That's a a multi-yard project, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Because Hinkley laid up the hull and and shipped it over to... uh, Brooklyn Boat Yard. They're putting in the interior, and Front Street is building the deck. What's a Hinkley 53? Now, I, Alan and I both worked at the uh, Hinkley Company, and we know all the models. There's no it's such a thing as a, a sailboat. Yep. Yeah, built for design a sailboat, yeah. And uh, basically, the owner wanted it. Hinkley wanted to build two, and so they decided that, you know, he went, the owner really wanted the boat, so he went back to the designer and said, who can finish it for me? And they came up with this idea of using the three people. So she's under construction with a Botin uh, 55 in front of her, which is a coal-molded race boat, and she should be going over in the middle of May. Yeah. Fair to say the Hinkley Company doesn't build too many sailboats anymore. They will if they had orders. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. But they're, point. No, they're, no, they're known for those nice picnic boats. Yeah, the jet boats of yeah. uh, really... Uh, you have to admit the marketing was wonderful, and they've followed through and made they're all over yeah, the place. So yeah. sure changed a lot since you and I were there, Mike. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and can I throw this in? I've got a, a, fr- a couple free boats to launch this uh, spring. I'm I'm actually too smart for most of the free boats I've been offered, but uh, you know I'm not doing it by myself, so I'm not that stupid. And uh, one of them's a nice 23 foot power boat that um, you know there's uh, issues of how to drive it. It used to have an out drive on it and and things go to hell and thinking about what else uh, John pointed me at a jet drive just came off a boat down in Bristol and the idea of putting a jet drive on the back of the boat there is uh, wow what could you know now you can run the shallow water run over lobster traps you uh, have to change the shape of the bottom call yourself a jet commander <laughs> I mean you know it's um, you can't line one of the carrier, though. Yeah, so what's this jet drive worth, I said to myself, and started Googling them. And uh, you can't get a price on one of those things without calling the uh, factory uh, for current pricing. I did find one used in a bait shed in uh, Homer, Alaska, for $20,000 or best offer. Needless to say, that's probably not going on. Well, I think Pedemco took one out. Yeah. And did, again, they still, did they sell it? Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't uh, haven't finished talking to Leon yet. Uh, yeah. The fella uh, put his uh, at 27 foot Pedebco boat, um, put a jet drive on it, but wasn't very satisfied for two reasons. One, it didn't go as fast as he hoped, and the second, he's down by uh, Bailey's Island, a lot of seaweed, and it will suck seaweed into the impeller. You have to stop, uh, raise the bucket, clear it off, and go again. Mm-hmm. Um, 
he ended up putting on, I believe, two humongous four-stroke outboards. Yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah, and wants to go faster, and, and uh, you know, who cares what happens to the propellers of those things when they're whizzing by, so... Have you been down there recently? No, I've been trying, but haven't yeah, made that, it yet. That yard's changed quite a bit when Leon bought it from Bruce Cunningham. And, you know, basically Bruce, you know, didn't own. He owned the whole company. So, But when you sell it, now you're putting something on top of that uh, spreadsheet that now you've got to pay for the overhead. You've got a lot of overhead. <laughs> and so he's added a lot more storage, and he's doing a lot more repair work. Still building. Yeah. You know, the 23s are still very popular boats. I was so. going to try to catch him at the boat show, which uh, we also should mention, too. Went down last month, but he wasn't at the boat show. So No, but I had somebody that was looking for him, too, for, at the boat show. Yeah. You know? uh, hopefully he was too busy to be at the boat show. And Yeah, he is very busy. Yeah, excellent, which, again, speaks yeah. to competence and location. And uh, It's like know. most of the shops on the coast right now. They're pretty busy. Go around the corner, go to Bruce Farron shop. He's got two boats in there, a 38 and a 40 to Calvin, going to uh, father and son out of uh, Cape Porpoise. Both fish boats. Yep. Yeah. Both commercial. Yep. Did the phone just ring? If it didn't, let's give the number anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here's the number, one 625 9378 As you can tell if you're listening, the subjects are varied and can be most anything that you happen to think of. We expected to have uh, Kevin Johnson from the Penobscot Marine Museum in here this morning. That's not... uh... He's on the phone now. Oh, even better. Yep. Good morning, (laughs) Kevin. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good to be here. Good. And I'm sorry for not being there in person. Oh, that's That's all right. That's my fault. We'll blame it on John. (laughs) Uh, You are the photo archivist at... uh, Penobscot Marine Museum. I guess we'll just start out and explain just what your your job entails. Can we back up to Penobscot Marine Museum? Okay, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> most of us recognize it on the side of the road in Searsport, but for people that don't go through Searsport all the time, uh, how about, uh, Kevin, speak about the museum itself just for a minute. Yeah, sure. The Penobscot Marine Museum is uh, the oldest maritime museum in the state. It was founded in uh, 1936, and... Um, uh, there's a misconception that it's just this one building that you see on Route 1, but in fact it's a uh, full campus with uh, 12, 12 buildings, which includes several historic uh, sea captain's houses that are filled from floor to ceiling with various treasures and artifacts um, from the age of sail. Um, we have we open for the season in Memorial Day, and we run every day of the week um, through the third weekend in October, and with a ton of different programs and events that happen during that time. Um, but we're not limited to maritime history. It's, um, we also in, include a ton of regional history, um, and our photography collection um, has grown over the past uh, decade to be the largest um, photography holdings in the state of Maine. Can we throw two more things in? The uh, campus there, like you say, a bunch of uh, absolutely classic buildings. It's a couple acres you have there. Uh, shout out to our friend Travis Lloyd this morning. He he runs oh, the yeah. uh, grounds and buildings there. <laughs> Travis never not, looked better since he arrived. Travis not only fairly capable in that way, but uh, we play him on the radio here from his uh, solo music career and his uh, work with his band called The Rugged. You know, so morning, Travis. How are we doing today? And. Uh, also uh, reminded that it's a very kid-friendly museum. It is, and we keep trying to make it more kid-friendly. Um, Good plan. It's definitely uh, the key, I think, to get people when they're young and get pique their interest. Last summer, uh, we had a model boat pond on on campus that we built um, for the season, and it was uh, really well-received, and um, it's given us ideas to make a, a bigger permanent one. Nice, and you've got a... Uh, Sort of a facsimile of a square rig out back. Kids get to uh, pull on rope coming off the capstan and, and pull the yards they, and stuff. And Do the yard in the yard, as we call it. And, nice. And, and we have uh, several boat barns that are filled with small crafts, uh, um, including a lobster boat as well. And the other season, it uh, might have been even the summer before last, you had somebody out on the front lawn building this big box, and it kept scratching my head, what the hell is that going to be? And <laughs> turned into be a big box camera. Yes. So, so now was, we're now we're to photos. That was um, that was my idea, and I recruited a, a couple um, 
handy people to both design and make it, but I wanted to, it was the year that photography was being celebrated in the state of Maine and all the different um, museums and cultural institutions were doing photography-related exhibits. And um, I wanted to have something on Route 1 that would catch people's eye. And uh, so my idea was to build a, um, a view camera that people could get inside and see the world like a camera sees it. And it is actually a camera obscura. Um, so when you get inside and you look toward the back of the camera, you can see the outside world being projected onto that wall upside down and backwards, which is how a camera sees it. I'm sorry I never stopped and got upside down and backwards. <laughs> it's not too late because we just have moved it off the front lawn, and it actually looks at the yard in the yard now. So you can watch people upside down and backwards nice. um, working the riggings on that uh, on that mast. I-, I shudder at the thought. Oh, <laughs> and and that's one of the tricks too, Kevin. You're on Route One. You got traffic. Uh, if you can't turn somebody's head and trip them as they're going by, you've kind of wasted a chance, you know. It's true, but it, you almost have to do that. It seems uh, there's. I understand about fifteen thousand people that drive by here every day, doing fifteen um, million different things. Exactly, and trying to. We're competing against so many amazing things to see and do around um, Mid Coast Maine. So, uh, so whatever we can do on that front lawn to to get them to put their brakes on and pull into our parking lot, we will do. Kevin, what's your background? Um. Interestingly enough, I, uh, I came into this whole museum world through the back door. Um, I had been a paralegal for 14 years and went to f- back to school for photography when I moved to Maine in 2003 and attended the Maine Photographic Workshops. Um, and I was there for a couple years, um, first as a student and then as a teaching assistant and then working with a historic collection that they had, which um, was the Eastern Illustrating and Publishing Company collection. And I spent a couple years working on it, and um, the school ran into financial hardship, and everyone was laid off, and then a flood in the building um, got the collection wet, and I helped to save it, and it ended up getting donated to the museum um, with the only catch that they had to take me with it. (laughs) Nice. the best thing that happened to the museum. (laughs) Could I say something about the paralegal business? I uh, (laughs) dealt with some legal people this last winter, and... um, Sorry. <laughs> no, me too. Um, remarkable for the lack of uh, fun. And uh, the other thing I noticed, they all seem to declaim and apologize for being lawyers. Uh, you know, I, I felt a little sad for them in a way. And they didn't help me either, so I felt very sad. <laughs> but just saying, good move, Kevin. Good move. Yeah. yeah, I'm not shedding any tears about leaving that world behind. They're yeah. not all bad, of course, but um, um, I'm doing something that I truly love and never would have. My dad's advice, my dad dad ran um, WMTW Television, Poland Spring, Maine, uh, Channel 8 TV for years, the station manager down there. And his advice to me was to grow up and be a lawyer because as far as he could tell, he was the manager and the lawyers were running the place. <laughs> if he had to do it over again, he'd be a lawyer. But again, enough about that. Let's go back to photos. So what do you got for an exhibit this summer? So this summer coming up, uh, we got several things going on. Um, well, we just launched a photography exhibit, and um, you can go see it in Camden for the month of April. It's uh, called uh, um, From the Cradle to the Grave, and it's an exhibit of ship launches and wrecks drawn from the Ed Coffin collection. Um, Ed Coffin was, uh, he was, lived in Owl's Head for probably the latter half of his life and was uh, very interested in um, Maine's maritime history and a big collector of old photographs. And he donated them to the museum um, a few years back. And last year, we finally finished cataloging all of them and digitizing them. And um, we had this exhibit to kind of acknowledge that and to acknowledge Ed because he passed away last year. So that exhibit is on display in Camden for the rest of the month. And then it will come up to the museum and be on display all summer. We open on Memorial Day. And in addition to that, we are bringing all of our... um, painting or the best known paintings from our collection um down to the main street gallery and and really putting the spotlight on them it used to be that was one of the biggest attractions to the museum um over the years uh, and one of the kind of the founding treasures that um, the museum had and uh, we want to bring them back to the forefront and while we're bringing them back to this Main Street Gallery, we'll actually be redoing the area where they are and putting an elevator in so that people can get upstairs in that top of that building. Um, 
we have a, a, a lineup of various speakers and talks, um, and ah, tons tons to share. Where, where <laughs> I should have our uh, development? I mean, our uh, marketing person on the phone right now too to help me uh, explain everything. I know what I'm doing to get ready for this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got us beat. Um, where in Camden is the uh, the show that's happening now? It's at the library um, in the picker room. Okay. They're right there in the center of town. The Ed Coffin uh, photo collection is said to uh, specialize in launchings and wrecks. You know? <laughs> that, that might be a... That's the two most popular photographs, two, I think. Two bookends of a boat's <laughs> life, and, and uh, but both uh, where so much detail is available to the camera. For sure. I, but it was it definitely is not um it those two subjects don't um monopolize the collection by any means um he focused on uh we probably had four or five binders just of schooner photos, some of them being built, some of them being in you know bad situations, but many of them just um on the water um and then photos of the different island communities uh a lot on the granite industry. Um, all the um, occupational trades that kind of surrounded um, the working waterfront, pretty much. Uh, Kevin Johnson from the Penobscot Marine Museum this morning, talking about photos here on Boat Talk. Uh, think to give us a call anytime. Uh, I always have to look at it. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Kevin, tell us about some of the other collections you got. Yeah. So, uh, in addition to Ed's collection, um, we have. The National Fisherman Collection, which is now um, all online except for the last chunk, which is coming out later this month. But that collection represents uh, more than 25,000 photographs uh, of the fishing industry, um, and it's the National Fisherman Collection, so it, it includes both coasts. Um, we also have the Atlantic Fisherman Collection, um, which is pretty much uh, made up of um, fishing and boating type imagery from the uh, from the northeast. We have um, a collection from a guy named Elmer Montgomery who was uh, lived down in Rockland um, and photographed uh, various working waterfronts in the 30s and talk about some amazing um, boat launch photos. He, he has some in his collection. Those are mostly a Rockland, right? That's what Maynard Bray's working on. Correct. Um, primarily Rockland, but also... Rockport, Camden, um, maybe as far down south as was Cassett. Um, but he was a, a really had a really good eye, and his photos are not just historic and descriptive, but also beautiful photographs. We have Maynard Berry's collection here, and that's being worked on as we speak, uh, both by Maynard and the people that are digitizing it. Hmm. Um, as I mentioned previously, I came here with the Eastern Illustrating Publishing Company collection, and Though that is not a strictly maritime collection, um, it has tons of maritime images in it, and uh, and all the various uh, coastal towns are well represented in that collection. There, there is a you uh, recently published a book with a lot of those pictures in it. Is that right? We did, yeah, Men on Glass, and I got to work with my uh, history heroes in Earl Shuttleworth and uh, Bill Bunting on that book. Um, and yeah, it was a, a book that I'm I'm really proud about. Main on glass. That's, Main on glass. Yeah. These uh, photographs, Kevin, uh, you know, if they were in National Fishermen, they come with a caption, but these old photographs don't come with no no written information about them. Oh, there's a lot of researching. Again, uh, the caption is quite a bit of the, to, to interpret this photo, uh, a great deal of work goes into that. You mentioned Earl Shuttleworth and Bill Bunning. Bill is famous in my world for a day's work. Oh, yeah. A series of, uh, uh, I believe there's two volumes of that. Right. Um, there is, yeah. Oh, God. I have bought probably more than two dozen copies of that book. <laughs> I used to give it away as presents all the time. I never, I've never owned a copy, but I've given it away. I've bought a lot of those. And the, the joy of that, you can see it in uh, the Maine Coast News, too, the back then uh, uh, feature in, in the yeah. Maine Coast News. Uh, Bill Bunting interprets these pictures, and Bill has a wide, varied experience he can not only tell you what the hardware is uh, about there he can tell you what the ox is thinking what kind of <laughs> because of its ears and its tail you know and and uh, again uh, remarkable uh and he and he's done his homework he's read every uh 
old newspaper and other, you know, sources from that period of time. And he often uses the um, the photo just as a launching point to, you know, bring you back to that period of time. And uh, he's just amazing. And he and he's very funny too in his writing. Uh, I'm sure you picked up on uh, that. Good humor too. Is is uh, and again is um, that uh, a lot of captioning process for your. Uh I know that Northeast Historic Film, when they take in films, they have to watch them and uh, write down a short description of what's on, on the movie at the time, you know, to uh, categorize what oh, you're seeing. Oh, for sure. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, you know, my background is more photography than maritime, but um, I've uh, been fortunate to be able to become friendly with m many great sources of information. Uh, John Johansson is, is one, and he's here every Friday uh, in our library, and um Many of my volunteers are maritime history buffs, um, and then people like Maynard Bray and uh, Bill Bunting. I mean, they're out there. Doug Lee. There's a uh, Kevin. You need um, an answer to something there. I've, I've tracked down most of the people I can go to to, to get it. Yeah, uh, Kevin. Can we uh, ask you to to stand by for a second? We have another phone call, and it yeah, may sure. be a question for you too. We're going to go to uh, Kate from Brooklyn. Good morning, Kate. Good morning, fellas. What's up? Uh, thanks for a fabulous program. Um, I had the opportunity to visit the um, the museum in Searsport when the when the postcard uh, uh, yeah, exhibit was sure on, here, and bought the and bought the main on glass book because it, I just enjoyed the the program so well. And um, excellent job on all of it, Kevin. Thank and you very much. One of the things that I was fascinated to learn there, or one of the little tidbits, was um, that some of these postcards provided pieces of information that never would have been able, never would have been available to historians of Maine history without them. And I think one of the instances that was mentioned was that there was some sort of a delivery business, and they knew that they had horse and wagons that did that, but there was no, mm -hmm. um, no image of it. And um, these photographers were told to just go out and capture um, everyday life in Maine. And one of these um, photographers caught one of, got a, a picture of a street with one of these wagons from that. The business. only picture of it. <laughs> the only existing photo or image of it. And Even though that wagon was out there every day for years <laughs> and years and years. So the happenstance of um, the work that these people did. That it seemed like, oh, you know, go out and capture these image for these postcards for people, but yet they ended up being so um, so important and vital for history's sake. And I was wondering if there were any other instances like that, any other bits of information that were total surprises and thrills when they were discovered, or if maybe that well, was well, many, and uh, it, it still goes on. I mean. Uh... We still are not even finished cataloging all these and illustrating stuff. What, yeah. I can tell you one great example, though. There was a, I was giving a, a presentation in Bayside, which is uh, the village in Northport, and it had its history as a spiritual community or a Methodist um, camp. And when I was giving the slideshow, I showed this photo of the inside of a, uh, of what there was their community building, and there was. Uh, a young girl on a, on a stage with playing the piano and her teacher is obviously looking down on her and the auditorium is empty and there's this sign above it that says God sees all. Oh. The streaming light coming through the window and, and there was a collective gasp from the audience. They knew about this building. They even made a scale model of it, but they had never seen any wow. pictures of the inside of it. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that that's the sort of thing that just blows you away, really. Seriously, and, and I don't think one... the photographers themselves had any intention of, you know, going out and preserving this stuff for prosperity or history. But that's what they did. That's the end result. Yeah, it was sort of that the, they were the accidental historians. Exactly. In that regard, and then and then just one other comment that I um, uh, years ago I inherited my grandmother's postcard collection. I, I had um, started one on my own. Uh, when I, I was living in Ellsworth at the time, and an elderly gentleman I know, um, who was from Surrey, found a box full of old Maine postcards at the Otis dump. And he said it seemed a shame for them to be there, and he could see 
that my imp- I was really amazed by them. And he said, well, do you want to have these? So I got those. Oh, good um, to you. And in these, uh, yes, I'm pretty thrilled about them still. And I have some of them framed in my home. But I'd always wondered why uh, folks would write on the front of the postcard and then the back was blank. And, of course, that question was finally answered when I went to the exhibit. And I'm uh, just, uh, I'm, I'm not, Before I 1907, you couldn't write on the back. Yes, the so these were these are old. These are 1903, 1904, yeah. and um, as are uh, many of my grandmothers. So um, yeah, just a fabulous exhibit. The work you do there is is not only important, but it's really fun. I think, and um, it's a fun way to think about history. So keep up the good work, and thank you very much. Okay, you might be also interested in as well as uh, you guys, that we are having a postcard show um, on June 15th here at the museum. Oh, really? And we'll have probably uh, a dozen to two dozen postcard dealers and other ephemera dealers here. And, um, oh. and Kate. Yeah. And Kate. <laughs> John, you might want to like, take a couple weeks off of eBay before you come so that you have some play money. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that, Kevin. That's oh, really my pleasure. Great. Thanks for your interest. Yeah, and for anybody who hasn't visited the museum yet or seen the book, Main on Glass, the you know, if you enjoy if you if you live here in the area and you have family visit from out of town, my family who have come, I keep that right on my coffee table. And they they've just really enjoyed the book so much. Just uh, poured over that. it over it and i have a nine-year-old cousin who was here last year and um she she wasn't that interested in dinner she ate what she wanted and she ended up um with that book on the couch (laughs) so it was just fabulous yeah she just thought the black and white was very very cool and the way things looked back then the wooden sidewalks she was blown away by that so, so thanks again, Kevin. My and pleasure. Thank you for, for the show, in. guys. Thank Kate, you, Kate. Kate, think of this for a second. Uh, photographers as the original time travelers. Mm. Yeah, yeah, they really do. Well, they enable us to go back. Yeah. You are there, you know. You again, there. there's uh, nothing more powerful than time travel. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and you know, the... The images are really worth a thousand words. Each of them could be the topic of uh, a story. So, yeah, wonderful stuff. Thanks so much, Kate. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you, W-E-R-U. You. Thank you, Kate. Um, Kevin, you yeah. you must work pretty closely with John sometime, being the researcher that he is. I mean, you, you probably come up with some uh, photographs and say, I wonder where this is, or I wonder what just what's happening, or I wonder what the name of the boat is, or something like that. And John, John to that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm sure John has uh, helped you out quite a bit. Have you got any uh, good uh, John Johansson stories? <laughs> now, John is an incredible resource to us, and uh, probably almost every week I send him at least one or two queries of people that have asked me if I can find out any information about this boat or that captain, and um, I would say most of the time, John strikes gold. Yeah. I think the last one was the Paul Seavey. Yes, exactly. From Gloucester, which was built in Brewer. Well, And um, one of his, and Charlie Seavey was the one that was trying to find out about it. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin, another friend of yours we had on Boat Talk, uh, what, a couple of months ago now, uh, Joe Mosier, the uh, Nautical Scribe Bookstore. And his wife, Captain Mary. I give him a heads up today. Mary's on the board of your museum. I give him a heads up today. They're in Budapest, Hungary, which was a good excuse not to uh, be with us this morning. Um, but, but, that, but Joe puts uh, our photos to work, too. He, uh, that's what I was getting to. Yeah, tell us. Go ahead. Uh, Joe does a blog every day on his Facebook page, uh, Nautical Scribe. Uh, go to Facebook, Nautical, Nautical Scribe Book. Um, often about a shipwreck or uh, possibly a launching, and he makes the point that you are very helpful with that. Well, that's great. I just like to see our photos get used. I mean, they're, they don't do anyone any good when they're filed away in boxes, and I like to see them put to work. Um, but how many museums hide them? <laughs> yeah. I heard stories... You know, I heard stories from Captain Doug Lee last week when I did that interview on Ed Coffin. It was basically he had he was turned away at Mariner's Museum and at Peabody. 
again, preservation being job one, we can't just let any fool look at this stuff. Uh, you know, <laughs> we have we have Fred back on the phone there, probably going to add something. Good morning, Fred. What's up again? Um, talking about history and photography, I wonder if anybody knows of uh, a book or particular preferably with pictures and commentary of the Great Eastern. Uh, I've heard of it, maybe saw a small picture, and I gather it was just so huge compared to the boat, uh, the average boat commercial, ocean-going boat at that time. And I'm It was an English vessel. Great Eastern, uh, are you thinking of a local steamship? No, no, she oh, was no. a great, great big steamship that came, Bunnell was the designer. It was built in England. Built in England. Back in the 1800s. And came over to America for Yeah, she had a lot of accidents. Exactly. (sighs) Wound up laying cable across the ocean, and God knows what happened after that. And uh, somebody looked at it, and they said the the hair on the back of the neck rose up because it was just so much bigger uh, than anything that was being built at that time. Yeah. yeah, there are several books. There's one that's a real old book, probably from the 50s, I think, uh, that was done on her. But there's, I'm sure there's other ones that have been done more recent. All right, well, I'll head down to the library and see what I can find. <laughs> uh, Kevin Johnson, your uh, photographs must be accessible online as well to some extent. True. They Thanks are. Thanks so much. We're, uh, adding to it all the time. Um, one of the collections I didn't, I forgot to mention, and Kicking myself for that because it's one of our biggest collections is the uh, Everett Red Boudelier collection, um, which is 26,000 photographs. That if you knew Red, uh, he Red sounds familiar. Oh yeah, he, you would have known. He him. was a photojournalist and he wrote for National Fisherman and Maine right. Boats, Homes and Harbors, um, and he he wrote and photographed. So uh, and he would supposedly never missed a boat launch in the mid coast, and uh, it's one of our great resources that people tap into it's a little bit more contemporary than some of these other older ones but um that makes it especially interesting because many of the people are still around that are in the photos Mm -hmm. or the next generation is and a great way to connect with them and that whole collection as well as uh, thousands of other images are online in our online database we have uh, more than a hundred thousand photos online Um, actually more than a hundred and ten thousand photos online now Um, and more going on every month Nothing so, to uh, it, right? You just wave a you wave a wand. They go online. <laughs> is it is is actually? I wish it was that simple. There probably is work to that, isn't there? There's quite a bit, but uh, it's it's great. And we typically, um, if you sign up for our e newsletter, which we send out once a month, we all often uh, are introducing the latest collection to come online um, with links that bring you right to it. Um, and so uh, I would encourage people to. To, to keep in touch with us and sign up for that newsletter. That's uh, PenobscotMarineMuseum.org. Is that correct? And you can sign up right on that homepage. It says sign up for the newsletter and just putting your email in, and we won't promise we won't spam you to death. I don't. <laughs> we're uh, coming towards the end of our hour here, Kevin. But uh, I don't know. You've mentioned another collection I um, saw on your website today. Costi. Costi. Oh. Tell us about Costi, yeah. <laughs> Maine boy. He sure was. And, uh, hung out with Walt Disney and made good. He did. And his collection, I mean, he's known for, many of his photos are known, especially for uh, Night Train that was cast at Station, um, the book that came out posthumously um, of his work. But this collection is more than 50,000 images, and I would say 80% of them have never been seen before. Um, and it's such a thrill that that collection has arrived here, and... Um, we have the support of Linda and um, Diana Bean to process that collection, and we can't thank them enough. Um, Linda Bean also uh, helped us process the um, the uh, Red Boudelier collection, too. So, uh, it, you know, obviously our operation, it takes a lot of money to do all this, and uh, we couldn't do it without the support of um, so many people and organizations like Linda, like uh, Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors. Um, like people like John that come in and contribute their personal time every week. And you must take um, boat donations, too. You mentioned We do take boat donations. We do. And uh, similar to what NPR does with their cars, you can donate your boat to us, and we'll um, turn it into um, funds for history. Notice you have a new director this year. Things are, like I say, dynamic and happening, fair to say, the Penobscot Marine Museum. 
Yes, Karen Smith uh, took the reins about this time last year, um, and she has been great, and we are really lucky to have her on board, and things are, are running smoother than they've been in a long time. Yeah, we're going to have to stop, uh, start stopping in and bothering you as we go by Searsport, Kevin. I sure hope right. so. Yeah. That's what we want. Yeah. Well, and actually, you know, the photo archives is open to the public uh, during the week. Um, so if you come to the museum, you can come in and you can talk with me or my fellow archivist, Matt Wheeler, meet our volunteers and see what we do. Very good. That's Kevin Johnson of the Penobscot Marine Museum. Thanks for joining us today, Kevin. Thanks for having me. And I'm sorry I was a little late getting on board. Well, that's fine. Thanks to John down in the engine room for keeping things going. Stay tuned for Johnny Too Bad coming up with On the Wing just next here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, 89.9, 99.9, the Bangor, and all around this wet world at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Gambell and Hunter Sailmakers, making sails for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main wind jammers for more than 30 years at 16 Lime Rock Street in Camden, gambellandhunter.com. Support for WERU also comes from Allen Insurance and Financial of Rockland, Camden, and Belfast helping to insure Maine boats and their people since 1866. An employee-owned company, allaninsuranceandfinancial.com or 800-439-4311. Democracy Now! produces a daily, global, independent news hour hosted by award-winning journalists Amy Goodman and Juan Gonzalez. Their reporting includes breaking daily news headlines and in-depth interviews with people on the front lines of the world's most pressing issues. On Democracy Now!, you'll hear diversity of voices speaking for themselves, providing a unique and sometimes provocative perspective on global events. Headlines at 8 o'clock Monday through Friday and Democracy Now! in its entirety at 